Greetings, dear viewers, and welcome on Creative Society Global Talk on Education project on Alatra TV. Today, we're communicating with one of the world's most known and respected experts in the field of education. Our today's guest is a laureate professor of Melbourne Graduate School of Education and chairperson of the board of the Australian Institute for Education and School Leadership. Our today's guest is Professor John Hetty. Uh, Professor Hetty, warm welcome on Alatra TV. Thank you very much for inviting me, Constantine. Thank you. My name is Dr. Konstantin Rybachuk. I am a participant of the Alatra International Public Movement. For those who are watching us for the first time, just a couple of words about the movement. Alatra International Public Movement is a volunteering movement and is an association of active, honest, and friendly people who inspire to use their best human qualities for the benefit of the whole society. It's a new format of relationships between people regardless of nationality, social background, status, political, religious affiliation, etc. And just a few words about the Creative Society project of how we, in the Alatra International Public Movement, envision the Creative Society. Creative society is a society where the life of each person is the main value, where the life of every person is valued, where every person cares about the society, and the society cares about each person. Professor Hattie, let me ask you the first question. How do you personally envision the society where you, your loved ones, and every other person in the world will live comfortably, and feel happy. Can you share us your opinion, please? Well, certainly, as you said, my interest is in schools and what happens in schools. And given the, the nature of your question, then for me, it's about what is a creative society and what does it look like in a school? Because I take the very strong view that students, kids, young children, they're living now. They're living in their society now. We are not preparing them for their future. They are going to prepare themselves for their future. So what we do with them now is pretty critical if they're going to mimic the kind of values that we espouse as the older generation that are working with young kids. So when I look at uh, young students, I'm very interested in developing their sense of respect for self and their respect for others. And particularly in our wired world today, respect for others is a pretty important thing to be taught. I'm very keen that in the creative world that they do develop precious knowledge. They do learn how to be open for opportunities, open for experiences, open for dialogue, um, and particularly open for the views of others. And that is something that needs to be taught. How do you stand in the shoes of others and understand how they think they be and they see their creative world and respecting that. It doesn't mean to say you have to agree, but there is a skill in doing that. And some, sadly, some students come to us and they don't have those, those notions of how they can see others. I'm very keen that in our world that we do have expertise and that is something that is developed through schools. And that could be expertise in being a painter, a paper hanger, a chemist, a water polo coach, a person who lives in this world. And I particularly value the expertise of educators 
are able to do these things. And that's the essence to me of a creative society, not only in the way in which we develop teachers, but I want to turn that into a, virtu a virtuous circle. I want us to teach our students to become their own teachers. And that to me is the essence of a creative society. I see. So uh, let me like make here a little conclusion for our viewers uh, from, uh, from your answer. Uh, two very important things as far as I see it. This is the culture of mutual respect between people. Yes. And for teachers is the culture of self-improvement, which is vital for them both personally and professionally. Yes, that's very much so, but I'd certainly want to go that step further and say that, and that's based on certain ways of knowing. It's based on deep conceptual understanding. It's, on, it's based on tension. Like, no kid goes to school to learn that which they already know. So there's a tension there about how you expose to people. And the same, today I'm talking to you in the Ukraine. I need to know a lot more about how you're thinking, Constantine, to have that mutual respect. And one way I can do it, which is what you're doing for me, is you're asking me about my views. I need to hear your views. We may or may not agree, but we may on time, but there is a tolerance. There is a sense of openness. And creativity, to me, is bringing together of two or more seemingly unrelated ideas mm -hmm. um, and that requires skill that requires teaching students to be aware of them um, seeing as many people have said before me being able to hold an idea in your head that you may not actually agree with yourself that's a pretty part, important part of developing and being in this world i see um Professor Hattie, you are one of the world's most known and respected experts. Let me ask you a question uh, about education. How do you personally envision uh, the development of education in the future and in the creative society? Please. Yep. It comes down to me to this notion of expertise of teachers. Like if anything I've found in my research is that the biggest issue in our schooling system is the variability amongst teachers. Unfortunately, most of our discussion isn't about that. We talk about the variability between schools. We talk about money. We talk about curriculum. We talk about assessment. We talk about the students. But it comes down that in a creative society, the most important development is that expertise of teachers and school leaders. And don't get me wrong, Constantine. What my research has shown is we have plenty of that now. We have excellence all around us. I'm just concerned that so often in education, we look for failure and we try and fix it. I'm much more interested in identifying success and scaling that up. And we have plenty of that expertise. And I think every, every children, every child deserves a great teacher, not by chance, but by design. And so in a creative society, we have to value that expertise. And sadly, I worry our current society doesn't value that expertise. We like amateurs. We think anyone can be a teacher. We think that any teacher that can improve student achievement is good enough. It's not. We can do a lot better than that. So in a creative society, there is a science related to how we teach. Many teachers have it. We need the courage, and that's what's missing here. We need the courage to identify that excellence, form a coalition of success around that excellence, and then invite others to join our profession in that sense of what excellence looks like. Well, that's very interesting. Um, uh, 
before we um, continue talking about the expertise of teachers and uh, about their um, self-improvement, personal and professional, I'd like you uh, to ask a question about schools. Um, we've mentioned it a little bit um, during the conversation, but still, in the schools and in the modern society, how important is it to raise the questions of humanity, of morality, and how is it working in the schools in Australia? Can you share with us, please? Your sure, Constant. Yeah, schooling is a, is a great example of moral purpose. Like every major question that we ask in the schooling session is about humanity, is about moral purpose. Why do we do this rather than that? Why do we teach this subject rather than that teacher, that subject? Why is this child getting the benefits of schooling as opposed to not that child? And so the moral purpose question is very much up front. Like in my research area, I have this phrase, know thy impact. Teachers who know what their impact is. Now, that absolutely begs the moral question. Impact about what? How many students are getting it? We can't afford to leave kids behind. Every child who enters the school gate needs at least a year's growth for a year's input. That's a moral purpose question. And so I think that the way you've phrased it to me is absolutely essential in a creative society. Now, we should welcome innovations in our schools. We should welcome really good implementation. And short of moral turpitude, um, we're actually pretty good at it. And so, yes, there are some things that we shouldn't be doing in our schools, but overall, I think that that moral purpose question is up front. I'm delighted the way that many school systems have answered that in terms of what the moral purpose question is. But sometimes you have to seriously worry. Like, you've got to worry about how we have privileged certain subjects in our school over others. Mm -hmm. We've privileged certain disciplines in our se section over others. you only got to have children yourself to realise that not every kid is going to be a Nobel Prize winner. Um, they still can make incredible contributions to life. You know, like one of my sons who has spent his career being a, a professional water polo coach, he makes incredible contributions to the lives of others. And I think that these are the kind of things we have to be aware of as we sit down to design curriculum, to design schools, to say there are multiple ways that we can be creative in our society, and that's what needs to be mirrored in our, in our school systems. So your question is absolutely the most foremost question of the life. Schooling is a moral purpose, and it really mm -hmm. begs those questions. We can't hide behind the fact that others may have decided for us. Every decision a teacher makes comes down to how they're going to treat a student as an individual and a student as part of the collective. That's a moral purpose question. So I think that you've hit it right on the head. That's the key question in our business. And here in Australia, mm -hmm. um, yeah, we, we certainly... Um, have made some really interesting decisions about the nature of our schooling. Um, I do think we've got a lot of work to do in terms of the number of students that don't feel invited to come to this place called school. We think that we have got too much uh, attention on high achievement. And the trouble with that is that just because you're not a high achiever doesn't mean to say that you can't benefit from schooling. And just because you're not a high achiever doesn't mean to say you go to a school where you're not making a dramatic difference. Kids from the bottom of the distribution, sometimes we can have a greater impact on those than kids that start at the higher part of the distribution. So high achievement sometimes is masqueraded and has allowed us to leave some kids behind. And that, I don't think, fits our moral purpose. The best schools 
the best teachers in our nation are the ones where the majority of the students, no matter where they start, make at least that year's growth for a year's input. And I think that's quite impressive that we can do that. Just not enough of it. I see. Fantastic. Um, Professor Hattie, um, the system of education of your dream, what is it like? Can you describe it, please? Yeah, my, my education um, of, like, Constantine, let me ask you a question back here for a moment to help me illustrate it. Can you remember a teacher that you had when you were at school that really made a profound difference to you? I do. The teacher of mathematics in the sixth grade. Yes, exactly. That and what was his or her name? She was an example of um, what we're talking right now about the example of humanness, the example of be a teacher, as we are seeing in Ukraine with capital with capitalized letter T, a teacher. Uh, that's the teacher who respected kids as her own kids. That was the teacher who motivated us, who supported us, who inspired us. Uh, and like I've just said, who treated us like her own kids. That was the teacher of mathematics. I do remember her very well. What was her name? Angelina. 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 Have you ever? Yes. She, have you ever she, made contact with you, her, and I, thanked I her for what she did to you? I, I, I unfortunately, mm -hmm. I haven't because she was our teacher for uh, two years in the sixth and in the seventh uh, form, and after that, she moved back to another country. She was from Georgia. Well, I hope she's watching this program today. Now, the point I wanted to make by asking you that question is we've actually done research studies on asking adults to remember those teachers that had a profound impact on them. And two things come out, or actually three things. Let me take the first. The first is there's not enough of them. Most of us can only remember one, two, or three of those teachers. And you had about 50 during your primary and high school years. But the second part of it is, as you said yourself, the reasons, two things, either that teacher turned you on to their passion. They really wanted you to know their passion. And secondly, and or, that teacher saw something in you you didn't see in yourself. That, as you said, what a gift that is. What a way in which those teachers respected you and saw something in you you didn't see in yourself. And that's the essence of the education of my dream, that each student has those teachers by design not by chance. Every student deserves those teachers, I would argue, every year. And it's really interesting when we ask the adults to remember back to their education and their teacher of their dream, none of them remembered them because it was mathematics or English or spelling or phys ed. It was because of what you said. They treated you as human beings with respect, with dignity. They created a sense of belonging. They wanted you to turn on to a passion and they wanted had very high expectations often high expectations than you have. I have no time for people say that your best is good enough and you have to do your best. Sometimes your best is not good enough. And great teachers are able to make you do better than you think you do. So the starting part of my education, my dream education, is that notion of those kinds of teachers. I want to go a step further. Let me yes, go one step further. Because, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, You're the I was going to ask, Professor, um, 
how to, let's say, to design such teachers? What should be, uh, let's say, uh, the working condition, uh, the social atmosphere to help these teachers to become highly professional, highly qualified, so they could work daily on their personal and professional development. And so in the end, they could help their kids to become the examples of humanism, the example of professionalism in the pupils they are educating. How to educate such teachers? What is your opinion? Well, I want to start with selection. Um, like in every profession, not just teaching, in every profession uh, around the world at the moment, employers are looking for graduates who can work in teams, who have social sensitivities, who can translate what they're doing to others. The old days where we looked for individual experts um, is for some of us sadly going, and for some of us, um, that's the world I was born up in. That's not what's valued at the moment. And so the employers want that. And if you don't have sufficient knowledge, the employers can give you that. But by age 18, if you don't have that ability to work with others, that social sensitivity, it's very, very hard to develop. Not impossible, but hard to develop. And so the first thing I'm looking for in, uh, in the education system of my dreams is starting with individuals that are able to, to walk in the shoes of others. And then obviously I want to improve their expertise to have an impact on their students. Now, that does mean that they do need to know things. They do need to know their subject matter. They do need to know about learning. They do need to know about child development. They do need to know about how our society works. But that essence of what we want to come to most of all is teachers who have very high expectations, who are, wouldn't it be nice if they liked kids? They're able to work with students, but they're able to do it collectively. If I ask many teachers today who have been out there, say, 10 or 20 years, and they turn out to be great teachers, how did they be great teachers? Sadly, too often, because they did it themselves. And the current generation, particularly brought up more in social media and wire generation, are much more collaborative, much more want to work in teams. That's what the employers, and that's what we need to see. How do we build a profession around teamwork? Now, sadly, like here in Australia, becoming a teacher, it's the fifth highest paid graduate profession. Pretty impressive. Salary structure is very flat, and there's no enticement for teachers to necessarily want to invest and for the system invest on the getting really better. You don't get more salary because you become better. You get more salary because you get older, and that's what we have to change. We have to find a way. Now, I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan of performance pay. That's never worked. It doesn't work in other professions where we pay teachers because they get great outcomes on students. What I am a fan of, as every other profession is, as, as what we're doing here in, in some parts of Australia, we've, we have by legislation, every teacher in Australia is either a graduate, proficient, highly accomplished, or a lead teacher. And in some parts, those are positions that you apply for, that you cannot get a lead teacher role unless you've qualified to be a lead teacher. Singapore, they've gone a step further. They have positions that you apply for in terms of that you've exhibited certain attributes of leadership or you've mm -hmm. exhibited certain attributes of specialization like you know a lot about assessment 
or you know a lot about teaching of reading, or you know a lot about how you can work um, with special needs kids. And so how do we build a, 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 an education system where expertise is the, ex, is the essence of it, that we see people applying to have higher and higher levels of expertise and pay is commensurate with that. And that to me is part of the education system of my dream. Let's get away from time on task as the criteria of success. Let's find ways to value that expertise. Um, here's the problem, Constantine. In some countries, like the United Kingdom, there are now more amateurs in schools than there are teachers. And by amateurs, I mean teaching aides and teaching assistants. In America, the employment workforce has shown that the greatest growth of any job, any job in America, is teaching assistants that have a zero to negative impact on them. How are we allowed that to happen? Now, I've got nothing against teaching aides. Well, I do. If we, if we give the kids who most need the expert the teaching aids, that's a serious problem. They can help teachers in terms of how schools and classes are run. But I, I fear for where we're going, where we think anybody can be a teacher, that there is no sense of expertise in the area. And sadly, sometimes teachers are the world's best at saying there is no expertise in their job. The kids did it. The parents did it. The resources did it. So my education system of my dream values expertise. It values what um, teachers who, as you said, who go into professional learning and who become better at having that impact on their kids. That's what I'd like to see as part of my dream. I see. Uh, Professor Hattie, um you've mentioned it already uh, that in some situations, uh, mostly actually, that the teachers get paid more when they get older, but not when they become, you know, more professional, more educated, more experienced. Um, in this regard, I'd like to ask a question. Uh, the culture of self-improvement, both personally and professionally, for every single teacher, how important is it and how to uh, introduce it um, into the masses? Well, let's start from the premise of schooling. We decided many decades ago that schooling should be compulsory. And one of the reasons we did that is because the premise is that teachers are better at teaching kids about school learning than the parents on general. That's the premise. Mm -hmm. And I think we've got a lot of evidence to show we've done that very well. But we ask kids to go to school to improve their learning. Why does that then stop and we don't think the same is true for teachers? And there's a lot of debate out there about professional learning and there are very many reports saying it's hopeless, it doesn't work. Well, I don't agree with that at all. Yes, it can be quite variable. But the premise of your question and the premise of what I'm agreeing with you is that if we expect students to go to learn to be better, we should expect teachers and school leaders to go exactly. to school to be better. And certainly what we're doing here in Australia with my, the Aidsville organisation, which is owned by the federal government, is we're investing a lot in high quality professional learning. We're developing a system, for example, where teachers can have a say in what high quality professional learning is, that the impact that they have on their students can be reflected to demonstrate what high quality professional learning is. And so how do you change the question from, do you need professional learning, to which my answer is of course, to 
what is the best kind of professional learning? And for me, it's the learning that up subsequently has an impact on students, not the learning that you necessarily like, not the learning that you want to necessarily get better at. If it doesn't have an impact on students, it's not high quality professional learning. And this is where school leaders are pretty important at being much more discerning and giving them the opportunities to know what the best professional learning is that has an impact on their students. And so, mm -hmm. yes, I think it's absolutely critical. You, you, it's hypocritical to argue that kids should come to school to learn, but teachers shouldn't. Exactly. In Ukraine, um, we have a phrase like, uh, there are teachers who after 20 years of teacher, teaching have 20 years of experience, but there are teachers who after 20 years of teaching have only one year of experience. Because every year during 20 years, they are like teaching like the same old way they used to teach during the first year and the rest, you know, other yeah. 20 years. <laughs> and actually it's interesting when you look at teachers' pay, I'll use Australia and many countries are like that, and it starts off sometimes in some countries not so good, but in our country it starts off well, then it goes flat. The only other profession I find that in is radiographers. And part of the reason is that when you look at the development of expertise, a lot of teachers make their greatest growth in their first three years in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And then, as you said, it's reasonably flat after that. Well, that's not good enough. Those teachers that do continue to improve, we need to reinforce and find ways of rewarding that. And that's why I am so obsessed about identifying the expertise that teachers have, acknowledging we have plenty of it and finding ways to find how we can create a profession around that, provided it's not performance pay. I'm not a fan of that, as I said, but finding ways that, like in, in, in um, your profession in terms of being a, in this, today being a broadcaster, if you improve through your professional learning, that gives you opportunities to apply for more senior, more experienced and more jobs that require expertise. That's not how teaching is structured at the moment. That's how I wanted to have it structured. Uh, Professor Hattie, let me ask you a question. It is very important right now for all the audience in the world and teachers, of course. Uh, because of the pandemic situation, more and more schools, and actually during the pandemic when it began, had to move to e-learning or remote classes. From your point of view, what are the advantages and disadvantages of distant learning? Please. Let me start with a slightly different observation like i don't know about the ukraine but here in australia you know we've been through complete lockdown here in victoria we came out of lockdown the kids went back to school then we went back into lockdown again and here in australia covid started at the start of our school year so we've had lots of experiences and what i have as a sense of marvel and want to note is that teachers found ways to overnight change how they ran their classes at home, at distance, came up with ways of doing it. Then overnight, they went back to the regular class. And then once again, they've gone back into um, in-home teaching. And each time they've done it, often without any recognition of the workload that they've done, right at the moment, I would argue that parents, more than any other time in our history, are esteeming what teachers can do. But the point I wanted to make, what a revolution led by teachers, led by school leaders. We didn't have to wait to find out from the Ukraine Department of Education how to do this. Teachers did it.
And so I think we need to harness that power. We need to harness that and not forget that we have an incredible professional group of people who have at the heart of their soul, they're wanting to help students. Sometimes we wait for systems. Sometimes we criticise teachers because they're not very good at changing. My first observation, they have done it. They have done it dramatically so. Secondly, uh, if you look at the research on distance learning, and there's been 21 large meta-analyses, 7 million students I've got in my sample comparing distance compared to in-class, and the effect size is tiny. And what that means is that the medium of how you go about instructing on distance or in class isn't that important. It's what you do with them when you have them. And I would argue the biggest difference between in class, where as teachers, we talk a lot. We talk about 90% of the talking time in class. We ask about 200 questions a day. 90% of those questions are about the facts, the content. Mm -hmm. When you go to distance learning, Zoom, online, etc., you can't do that. The kids are just turned off. And so you move from talking a lot to listening a lot. And so you listen to what the students can do and can't do. And in the, in the, in a, in a, from a nurse's point of view, they call it triage. You work out what's important and you focus on that. And certainly in some cases, like I remember the Christchurch earthquakes. I was in, living in New Zealand at the time and schools were just gone, demolished. And it was the days, in the early days, before we had a lot of online kind of learning in schools. That year, our students did the best they've ever done in their final examinations because teachers changed how they taught to listening to what kids need and dealing with that in groups, not one necessarily one-on-one. -on -one. And so I see an incredible amount of benefits from distance learning. And my plea is that we as educators keep a learning log ourselves of what's working well. So when we go back to in-class, we can actually bring back better. We're much more able to hear students thinking aloud. They're much more willing to talk online or through social media or on video or through chats about what they don't know. And that, I think, is the essence of good teaching. So I think there's a tremendous amount of things that we can do. Now, don't get me wrong, Constantine, there are some losers. Some kids don't have access to this kind of technology. Mm -hmm. yeah. Some kids who are incredibly dependent on the teacher, waiting for the teacher to construct and orchestrate their next learning moves. They don't do so well, and that's sad. And I think that's something we need to bring back. We have to stop being the director of learning and we have to start making, sorry, stop being the director of how we teach and start being the orchestrator of how kids learn. And that's a massive thing. We, I have seen a lot of benefits from this COVID experiment. On the other hand, I acknowledge sadness, there's death, there's sickness. There are kids that are being left off. But don't assume that they're necessarily the kids that were left out of schooling in the regular days. Some of those kids do very well online. So I think there's a lot to learn, a lot of powerful things to learn, and I hope that we can realise that incredible power of teachers and school leaders to change dramatically. And so I hope when we come back to in-class, we will bring back better. You know what, it reminds me uh, the situation, we do have it in Ukraine. What, um, I mean, no matter what happens, the teachers are the ones who are always looking for the ways to become better. Pandemic situation, okay, we've faced some problems, we've uh, faced some issues, but still, within that, we're still looking for the ways, even in such situations, to become better. Two words of a true teacher. <laughs> Thank you very much.
<laughs> you're right. And you, you keep on about creativity and humaneness. We are seeing that dramatically. Teachers are incredible in their hum sense of humaneness of doing the best for their kids and creative. Oh, my goodness. Uh, can you imagine, Constantine, if I came to your government and said, I wanted to close all schools down as we know it. I want to send all the kids home for the next 10 or 12 weeks. It would not be allowed. But we've done it. And we're actually doing a very good job. And actually, I would love to invite you to visit our government because I know for sure, I know some ministers, I know deputy ministers of Ukraine, and they, that's 100%, they would like to meet with you and communicate with you about how to make the system of education better and better. Because like I said already, you're indeed a world most known and respected expert in the field of education. Uh, if you do well, have time to come to Ukraine, I would be well, great to introduce you to them. And if I'm allowed out of lockdown, I'd love to feel jet lag again, and I would really welcome that opportunity. And, you know, I've talked to some of um, your colleagues in the Ukraine about coming, and I almost got there a couple of years ago, but I see so many uh, opportunities, and you can imagine, I love talking about the stuff. Um, I'm very much driven by success. I see it constantly and I would love, particularly what's happening in your country at the moment with the mammoth changes that you've been going through, what an opportunity to do the kind of things that you and I are talking about today. Bring the essence of the humaneness, of the creativity of teachers and students because those students are your future now. <laughs> Thank you very much. Professor Hattie, uh the next question that I'd like to ask you and talk today, uh, you're right now holding the position chairperson of the Australian Institute for Teaching and School Leadership. Uh, and its mission to promote excellence so that teachers and school leaders have the uh, maximum impact on student learning in all Australian schools. Uh, the Institute's area of all focus are the initial teacher education school leadership for more autonomous schools and on supporting practicing teachers. In this regards, uh, I would like to ask you two questions. Uh, the first one is, ideal teacher, from your point of view, can you describe it, please? And please describe of what is the ideal school leader, please. Well, just to put it in context, Constantine, the, here in Australia, we have various states and territories which run schools, and the federal government doesn't own a single school but they do own AITSL, the organisation I'm the chair of the board. So I report directly to the federal minister, but we have no legislative powers, we have no financial powers. So all our work is done with consultation. And my predecessors in AITSL, and something I've continued, is what we realised in the early days is teachers are incredibly big users of social media. So we have a huge social media platform, we connect directly, we consult incredibly dramatically. And so one of the first things AITSL did was develop the professional standards for teachers, for school leaders, and more recently for teacher education. And so in essence, we are responsible for the quality of teachers, school leaders, and initial teacher education. And I really, I have to say, I thoroughly enjoy doing the job. It's interesting, it's tricky, it means a lot of consultation. But those two things that um, I think are the essence of what I want to come to in the ideal teacher and the ideal school leader, it comes back to that ways in which we can do it collectively. You cannot, in the Ukraine or Australia, fix a system, one teacher, 
one school leader, one school, one teacher education program at a time. We have to be smarter at building connections between the profession because as we've found in COVID, they will fix it. They will improve it. But if we keep coming down from the top and or worry one at a time from the bottom, we're not going to have a great system. We're going to devolve to the loudest talker, to the latest political distraction that comes in. And my goodness, do we have lots of distractions in schools. So I think that the argument about the ideal teacher is based on the professional standards and they need to be legislated. We've identified what a new graduate, what a proficient, what a highly commissioned lead teacher is. Same with school leaders, same with teacher educators. And we are delighted as they move up. Now, at the moment, there's a bit of resistance amongst the teacher education institutions to doing this. And sometimes our school leaders say, no, once you're a school leader, you're a school leader. There aren't degrees of excellence. And so I think it's firstly about that building that expertise. And secondly, it's about how do you build a community of excellence? And so we have here um, our highly accomplished in school leaders. The acronym is HALTS. We get them to meet. You can't come to the meetings unless you are a highly accomplished school leader, so it's an exclusive society. Uh, we use that to demonstrate to our politicians, to our parents, to our voters, and to our profession that we are. We have got the courage to identify what excellence is. We define it in terms they have to demonstrate to become a highly accomplished lead teacher. They have to demonstrate the impact they're having on students. Exactly. We don't care how they teach. We don't care how they teach. Too much discussion. We don't care about a school leader in terms of perhaps their personal attributes. They have to demonstrate they have an impact on kids. Now, as a consequence, we do care about their teaching and their, and their attributes, but the changing the discussion, which happens in so many countries that there are proper ways to teach, there are research-based ways to teach, not a fan. No, it's not the way to go. It's that impact you have on students. And as you'll discover, there are multiple ways you can have a desirable impact on students. It begs the question we started this conversation with, the moral purpose one, about what's the nature of what do you mean by impact? What do you mean by a year's growth? And so the ideal teacher to me is someone has the maximum impact on the majority of students to a great degree. And when I say the majority of students, I actually want all, no matter what they come to the classroom with, I think we have an obligation. And so my ideal teacher it has that maximum impact on kids and can talk about it and can defend it and is prepared to get up and work with others to help them also have that maximum. And that's the collegial part of the ideal teacher. It's no different for this great school leader. School leaders, their first impact is on their teachers to then have an impact on students. They don't have a direct impact on students. That's a bonus when it happens. But there is, how do they build a collective team and this notion of collective efficacy about their impact? And there are plenty, many, many examples of those who can do it. Sadly, not enough. And so my ideal teacher, my ideal school leader, my ideal teacher education program is defined in terms of its impact. And I think that as a government, we need to legitimise that debate um, we need to make sure that it is a robust and healthy debate and we need to make sure that it's led by the profession. That's what we've done. Thank you very much, Professor Hetty. Um, continue the conversation about this. Um, my question will be about 
continue talking about the impact of teacher, of school leader, of school or education on the society. Right now in the world, unfortunately, we have so many types of conflicts. We have military conflicts, religious conflicts, economic conflicts, you know, we can name much more. Um, from your point of view, what is the origin of all conflicts between people? And if we have so many different types of conflicts, maybe in this regard, the school and the system of education is not doing its job right or in full. What do you think? Well, we got to be careful here. We don't blame schools for everything and we don't ask schools to fix everything. Like, in my view of the world, it's the tolerance of diversity, which means I have to firstly stop and understand your point of view, Constantine. Um, I have to stand in your shoes and understand. I don't have to agree with you, but I have to stand in your shoes and understand how you think and how you think differently. I have to understand why it is, in your view, that you want something I have and prepared to go to war, to denigrate, to put people in horrible positions. And so understanding that. And then I come back to your notion of what it means in a classroom. Like here in Australia now, diversity is the norm. The old days when principals used to say, oh, my school's so different. We've got 36 nationalities. We've got 42 um, different languages. That's the norm. That's what most schools are like. The old school where all the kids were of the same ethnic background of the same social class, that is not the norm anymore. That's the exception here in Australia. Mm -hmm. So schools do mirror very much the diverse viewpoints. And I don't think here in Australia our job is to make all students define in a narrow, assimilated way. It is that tolerance of diversity. It is that social sensitivity. That is that ability to listen, that is ability to hold an idea in your head that you might not agree with. And if we can do that in our schools and make schools the most civilizing places in our democracies, in our world, we have a better chance as we go forward, as the world becomes flatter, as the world becomes more interactive. That dispute, that disagreement is going to be magnified, and that's scary. Um, and so can we teach kids to tolerate difference? to come up with creative solutions so that they can understand how others work alongside and with them. And that's why I'm so passionate about the collectiveness of our understanding. Collectiveness doesn't mean we all agree. It means we have. And like for me as an academic, I have been blessed in my life of having many critics. And criticism is the essence of what we do in academia. Now, I think I'm very good at criticizing the idea, not the person. But some people can't. They want to generalize from the idea that you hold, Constantine, to you as a good or a bad person, depending on whether you think your good or bad ideas are. And imagine, for instance, me going to a doctor and the doctor saying, well, you've got this ailment, therefore you're a bad person. That doesn't happen. We have to make sure that doesn't happen also in our schooling system. So I think that um, I have a lot of hope that schools are a way that we can make our world a better place. Um, sometimes as has happened in your country in the last few years, we can't afford to wait for that to happen. Um, I might be a little bit kind of overboard here in making these claims, but I think it's the essence of my being is that um, our job as human beings is to give back. 
And that's what I'd like to see happen in our schools and in our society. I got it. About the society, uh, Professor Hattie, let's uh, imagine that you have an opportunity to create a model of a righteous society where everyone will be happy. What aspects will you begin? Well, I'd start with that notion of social sensitivity. I think that respect for self and respect for others is the core of human beings. It's the core of the education system. It's the core of a civilized society. Um, not that we have to all agree, but we all have to agree to disagree in a way that we can actually then work together to come up with a better society or allow people who don't want to work together to come up and live in a society where they at least appreciate and are open to diversity. And to do that, you need knowledge. You need to understand how that works. It's not just a, as we often call in education, a 21st century school or a soft school or a disposition. You do that as you get to become a physicist, a painter, a plumber, a phys ed person. There are skills, there is knowledge, there is expertise, there is understanding that in doing that. So I'm a bit greedy here, Constantine. I want the lot. I want that social sensitivity and respect for self and others. I want people to develop uh, ways of thinking verbally, um, creatively, um, the whole notion of building an, a society based on expertise and intellect in multiple ways. So I, I think we're in a reasonably good place to do that if we have the courage to then ask that of our school system and of our society that we teach kids. Because as I said much earlier to a question, sometimes it's too late when they're 18 and 20. We need to teach them in the very early years how they can work with others, how they can work collaboratively, so that collectively we can come up with better answers. Okay. I see. Uh, Professor Hattie, uh, there is uh, one more question that I'd like to ask you about the society and about education. Uh, we, yes, apparently we do have like many difference. We speak various languages, we have various nationalities, color of the skin, you know, but anyway, from your point of view, um, what unites all people on the world, regardless of their, like I mentioned, religious background, nationality, language, what unites all people? And what can make us, uh, regardless of any differences, to live in the society like one big family? Well, it, I'm going to be bold here. Clearly, one of our reasons on Earth is to create the next generation. You might call it survival of the fitness, procreation, you name it. And that comes back clearly to my heart and where I am, the development of children. Um, I think that even those adults that don't have children of their own are aware that they are the future and they are creating the future for us. And when you get to my age, you absolutely know that the world is being created by my four-year-old grandchild and the 10-year-old and the 30-year-old and the 50-year-old politician. Um, it is about an educative society. It is about a way we educate. So the essence to me is that notion of education. And as you said, how can we do it in a way across boundaries, 
across diversity. The good thing at the moment, certainly compared to when I went to school, is diversity is all around us. It's not something you study in the textbooks. I know in some societies, it's still not as diverse as the rest of the world is. But I'm hopeful that as the world becomes more diverse, we will actually start to have more tolerance. We'll have more creativity, bringing together ideas we hadn't thought of before in, in different ways. And so I'm very optimistic if we put our heart and soul and the development of our children, we are going to have an incredible society, not only in the future, but right now. And the more we have that caring for our young people, um, in the similar ways, like with my own children, I said to them many times, if you care for your pets, you're going to care for humans. I want to go that next step. If we care for children, we're going to care for society. And so when politicians make decisions, is this something that you can defend in front of a five-year-old or a 15-year-old? That's a pretty good litmus test to know whether it's a worthwhile thing to do. So I have a lot of confidence in us, us as an educative society. You know, um, what I want to add uh, to uh, your answer, um, you mentioned that the more we care about the children, and of course, the better we care about the children, the better we care about the society and changing the society. And the role of the teacher is vital here. What I'm very pleased uh, to have in my country is that not all of them, but the majority, most of the teachers, when they address to the pupils or students in their class, they are saying that these are my children because teachers address to the students as to their children. I do have a son, but still during the year, I have like about 100, 120 students going through my classes every year. And still, for me, they are also my children because I am responsible for their future, for their education, for what they are going to become in the future as a human being and as a professional. That's what is, you know, I'd like to share as well. Constant, I'll just add one deviation from what you said. They're not my children. They're our children. Exactly. They're our children. Exactly, sir. Exactly. Um, Professor Hattie, we have a tradition uh, to ask our uh, speakers um, to recommend one or two person or many people as you like, with whom we can continue this conversation about the creative society and about education in the creative society. So to continue this global talk on education, can you please think of one or two people whom you can recommend so we can contact them through you and to continue this conversation about education in the creative society? Can you name one or two people, please? Right now? Yes, please. Sure. Um, a person who I hold an incredibly high esteem looking at creative societies, uh, diversity, is Linda Darling-Hammond um, from the US. Um, personal friend, but unbelievably excellent and sets to me the standard, uh, particularly on the notion of diversity and making sure every student, and she's kind of followed a similar trajectory to me in the sense that she's been an academic, but she also has been very strong in the political space and changing whole systems. So she's very impressed. Mm -hmm. So she'd be someone that uh, certainly I would look to. Um, someone from um, 
the UK, uh, I think um, Dylan William, we, we disagree on a lot of things, but we, whatever, but he has some very good track record of um, the kind of things we're talking about. And um, another person who has a different perspective to me, but someone I really listen to, uh, is, is a German scholar, Andreas Schleicher, who is the head of mm -hmm. PISA. Um, and mm -hmm. many people portray him as the evil numbers man, but he actually has got some very strong views about diversity and creative societies. And I think that uh, those three would well be well worth talking to. Thank you very much. Uh... Professor Hetty, uh, you have an opportunity right now to send a message to all educators, not only in Ukraine or Australia, many, many other countries who will be watching us later. Uh, what kind of message would you like to send? I want every educator in the world to know their impact, to have that as their fundamental three-word motto and of course, it begs those questions about impact about what, impact on whom, and impact how much. But that's my major message. And if we could come back to that message, like it's simple, Constantine. I would argue every teacher in the world came into the profession to have an impact on kids. And all I'm doing is reminding them of their moral purpose. No, thy impact. Thank you very much, Professor Haiti. Uh, I ran out of questions. Uh, however, um, if you don't mind, I would really love to continue our conversation and uh, have some more interviews with you because I do really have much more questions to ask you and I strongly believe that your experience as an educator and as a teacher would, would be very valuable for me personally because I'm also a teacher and for all other teachers who are teaching right now and as we say are in the field with kids, educating them. I appreciate that, Constantine, as you can hear. I love talking about this too. Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor Hetty. Dear viewers, um, if you'd like to know more about the project Creative Society, we are inviting you to visit our website, which is called alatraunites.com. Uh, right now you can see it on your screens. Uh, in the right top corner, uh, there is a button called Join Us. You can click on it and uh, fill out this form, this short form in one of the languages you feel comfortable and send us the message and we will contact you. And just want to remind again that we had a fantastic conversation with uh, Professor John Hattie. Professor Hetty, thank you very much for joining us today and for answering our questions. Thank you very much, sir.